please open your Bibles, <coughs> excuse me, to Proverbs 18. Proverbs chapter 18 as we continue in this book. Difficult to preach through, probably a little more difficult to hear these sermons than those short passages from Paul's epistles. But if you hang in there, you'll be rewarded. Our passage today has to do with words. Words have the power to heal and the power to destroy. Words can set nations to war and they can bring an end to the war they began. Words can rip apart a community, a family, a church, and they can create a community of peace and love. Early on, we learn the power of words. I have a childhood memory of being in my front yard with a bunch of kids in my neighborhood playing in the grass and one of the girls there who was older than my little brother and though she wore a dress was quite a bruiser um, ended up slugging my little brother causing him to cry and I was very angry at what she'd done so as we stood on the property line between my house and the neighbors I loudly and angrily, for I was angry, informed her that she would never be able to come to my house, even cross the property line, which I designated with my outstretched arm, again. She took my words like they were an eternal mandate from on high and burst into tears. Now here's why I remember this. I remember feeling the power of my words. That I could say these few things and make her cry. We come to realize the importance of words as I did as a young boy in the midst of conflict. Words can destroy a community. They can alienate close friends, or they can bring people together and heal what was wounded. Our passage today, 21 verses, comes in two parts. The first, verses 1 through 11, teaches us about the fool and his words. And the second part, verses 13 to 21, puts on a clinic for the person seeking wisdom, showing how to use his words well. Now, rather than reading the entire passage all at once, we're going to look at it verse by verse as it unfolds. So <laughs> please keep your Bibles open so you can follow along as we look at the text. And let us pray for insight into these words. Pray with me. Father, we pray that the words I speak in this sermon would be in keeping 
with your word. And we pray that the words we hear and how we apply them would be in keeping with your word. We pray that our entire lives would be informed and shaped by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first 11 verses I've titled, The Fool and His Wisdom. And before we even begin reading, I need to remind you that the term fool can have a range of meanings. It can refer to the teenage boy who should know better, but went ahead and said what was on his mind, not considering the effects his words would have. But a fool can also refer to an adult who is hardened in his folly. He wants what he wants and doesn't care what anybody else thinks or how his actions might harm others. Our text today would refer to this latter fool, the fool who is so committed to his own desires that he'll use his words to get what he wants, no matter how they affect others. So, verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, that word translated isolates I think it can be misleading. This is not a reference to a hermit. The New American Standard Bible translation reads, he who separates himself. This is a reference to a person who allows a difference of opinion to break a relationship. He withdraws. He wants what he wants, his own desire. And if someone has sound judgment, that counters his preference, he'll reject the relationship rather than deal with a different point of view. It's very common. We separate ourselves because somebody thinks or says something to us we don't like. Verse two, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Bruce Waltke summarizes this very nicely. He says, he has a closed mind and an open mouth. <laughs> he loves to hear himself talk. His proposal is, in his mind, irrefutable. So he's unwilling to consider any different perspective. But he insists that you listen to him. Verse 3. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with it, dishonor comes disgrace. In the context of the verses that surround this, this refers to the wicked use of words. In Proverbs, the wicked person isn't someone as bad as he can possibly be, or someone who's in league with the devil. To quote Bruce Waltke again, the word wicked combines the moral perverseness of what people say and do with the calamitous results of their lifestyle. So they are not just privately sinful, their sins have impact on many. His words and actions bring results that harm both him and others. 
In the long run, wickedness brings three types of shame, the contempt of others, dishonor in the community, and disgrace. Verse 4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. The phrase deep waters in the Old Testament almost always refers to something that's hidden from view. You look into the pool and you don't know what might just be down there, a box of treasure or a bomb. Sometimes our words are a mystery even to us. So we say, I'm not sure why I said that. It's just what came into my mind. Our words can be hidden. The motives behind them can be hidden. They are hard to discern. But wisdom comes with the clarity and life-giving water of a bubbling brook. You can see what's there and you can see that it's good. Verse 5. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. There are three verses in this passage that allude to the giving of a bribe. The wicked will use his dark words in court which conceal a benefit he has offered the judge and so the innocent righteous do not get justice. Those deep words, those hidden words can lead to great corruption and injustice for the righteous. Verse 6, a fool's lips walk into a fight. That's a wonderful image, isn't it? Lips walking into a fight. I just looked at that. I thought, that is weird. (laughs) And his mouth invites a beating. Here again, we see the consequences of the fool's speech. Rather than thinking about what may result from his words, he relishes the argument, only in the end to get punished for his role in it. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Not only do the fool's words lead to his downfall in the community, they trap his very inner life. He lives a a lie. He gets trapped by what he has said. Verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. This, of course, is a reference to gossip. Gossip gives a strange pleasure. Somehow, having negative knowledge about another person that is actually none of your business gives a sense of power, a sense of inner smugness, a sense of superiority. But what that inner knowledge does is alienate you from the person who is the object of the gossip. 
Verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now, when you first look at these, you think, what? How, how does this fit? And what happens is, you've you got to understand, when you translate from another language, you have to smooth out your translation, because if you had a word-for-word -word translation, it probably wouldn't make much sense. So there's a word that we would translate in English that begins this proverb, and that word, English word, is even. <coughs> so it's making a comparison to the previous verse. Even as the lazy man who neglects his work destroys his business, so the gossip of the previous verse destroys his community. Or another way to put it, we all know that the slacker ends up impoverishing himself and those he works with. Even If this is even true, how much more is it true of the gossip? And then the next two verses, 10 and 11, fit together. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. When under attack through a corrupt lawsuit, through gossip and slander, through lies and misrepresentations, the wise do not turn to use the tools of the wicked to defend themselves. They turn to God, to his name, his righteousness, his justice, his sovereign power. That is their first and primary defense for safety when under attack. Before defending himself to others, the wise man, the wise woman, finds his security in God. Rich people think, and it's easy to be deceived by this, they think their money will prove to be their safety. They can buy the best security people, the best lawyers. They can provide the effective bribe. They can always pick up and move somewhere else. And the rich think <coughs> that we are naive for thinking that the unseen God will protect us. Listen to Derek Kidner who uh, brilliantly encapsulates these points. The world thinks that the unseen is the unreal, but it is not the man of God, but the man of property who must draw on his imagination to feel secure. Amen. Your money ain't going to buy you nothing when it comes to what's needed, what's important. You have the maker of heaven and earth who will keep you through this life into eternal life. So you don't have to resort to your protection by money or all the other manipulative tools of the wealthy. Verse 12, we call a hinge verse. 
<coughs> in other words, the verse looks back on verses 1 through 11, and then it looks forward to verses 12 through 21. Verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If you speak as a fool in your pride, you will face ultimate ruin. But if you walk in the humility of the following verses, you will build a strong and healthy community and gain honor from that community for your contribution. Okay, so if you give yourself to folly, like we just saw in those 11 verses, you're going to have major problems. But if you turn yourself over to trusting the Lord, it opens the door for you to walk in wisdom with your speech. And so we turn to the second half of the passage. Learning wisdom in how you use your words. Learning wisdom in how you use your words. Verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now, you've probably experienced the st- <laughs> Let me just say, I have experienced the sting of this verse many times. Don't assume you already know what the other person is going to say. Pay close attention. If your assumption is wrong, <coughs> and you speak based on your wrong assumption, you will be considered a fool. Verse 14. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Bruce Walke comments on this verse. Wisdom produces a spiritual life that can endure sickness. You know, as we have prayed and we have a church that has many people who have chronic illnesses and problems. Um, we, have, we have seen that people who trust God and walk in wisdom have resources that go beyond the practical and personal care they may receive. They can endure it. And sometimes you think, man, I don't know if I could ever do that. And you find out when you get in that situation, actually, yes, you can. If you run to the Lord when attacked, if you treat others well with your words, if you avoid bribing people to get your way, if you tell the truth, you will have resources that go beyond this world. But if you suddenly experience the consequences of living the life of a fool, you will not be able to bear the despair that results. Many times people fall into despair, just uh, the kind of depression that just gives up on everything because they're reaping the effects of years of folly. That does not mean there is no hope for them. That does not mean that Jesus cannot rescue them. But it is a reality that the wise person who puts his trust in God and walks in wisdom can endure even the worst sickness. But a crushed spirit, who can bear? Verse 15, 
An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Now there's a paradox here. To become intelligent, you must already be intelligent. (laughs) To seek wisdom, you must already be wise. And so here's a, a reality about wisdom, and that is that the wise person knows he never arrives at a state of wisdom that does not require further learning. So inwardly, he's always searching out answers to questions in his heart. And outwardly, he's listening to other wise people who might have answers to his questions. Nobody arrives at wisdom. We're all striving to get there. And in the striving to get there, we prove to be wise. Verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Now, at first glance, this looks really good. (coughs) It reminds me of Proverbs 22-29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. But sadly, that's not the context here. It's not about a man's talent. This is a reference to a bribe. You give the powerful a gift, and he introduces you to his friends who can help you. The senator really appreciates your campaign contribution, and he'd be happy to put in a good word for you with the Secretary of Commerce. That's how power often works. Whether it's in the highest offices of the United States of America or on the library committee in your local town. The wise person can learn two things here. First, we need to be savvy that this is often how power works. And so we must be aware that there may be more to a perplexing decision from a powerful person than meets the eye. But second, the wise person can learn to be impartial in his own exercise of power. Money should not buy influence to the disadvantage of others. We should be even-handed with all people. If you're a parent, you should be even-handed with your children in your exercise of justice. If you have a position of responsibility or authority in your business uh, over children in a school, you should strive to be impartial and not allow the gifts or the kindnesses or good things that people do to you make you show favor to them over another, especially in a dispute. Verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. This is so obvious and so ignored. We are quick to listen to the one we know, the one who's our friend, the one we have common cause with, the one who gets to our ears first. Sounds right to me. This is how the news media acquires vast wealth. Salacious allegations attract readers, and so you don't want to dilute the sensation with counter-evidence. It takes months for the case 
that is widely uh, proclaimed of the corruption of a particular individual. It takes months to get that case to court. And when it does, and the defense is able to speak, you learn a whole new set of facts and you see the holes in the evidence and arguments of the accuser. I would urge you to tape this verse to your computer screen if you have a problem with this. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and enlightens him, examines him. It applies to what we see in the news. It applies to disputes at work. It applies to parents trying to decide what led to that broken window. It applies to churches. The wise person only listens to those bad reports that might affect his life or the life of his community. And if he must hear them, he forms no opinion until he's heard all of the evidence from both sides. Church, let's learn this because we live in a world that has gone crazy when it comes to justice. And this plays out in the halls of power, plays out in presidential politics, it plays out in your home. So let's learn this. Let's learn to be those who don't show favoritism because someone's given us a gift. Let's be those people who don't have a particular side. Let's listen to all the evidence when we must make a judgment. Verse 18 and 19. <coughs> the lot puts an end to arguments, I'm sorry, to quarrels, and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. The point of these two verses is to do all you can do to end a quarrel quickly and decisively. The longer a fight continues, the longer one or both parties get hardened in their offense, the greater harm it can cause to the entire community. So strive to avoid offending others. And if you do, as Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser before you even get to court. That doesn't mean you just admit you're wrong when you're not. Sometimes we have to agree to disagree. Now in ancient Israel, they had a way to deal with this, and it was called the casting of a lot. The casting of a lot in verse 18 is not a reference to the chance of the rolled dice. It's like, we'll leave it up to chance. In the Old Testament, when neither case was conclusive, the two parties led by the priest would lay the matter before the Lord and then through casting lots, trust that God would settle the matter with what the lot revealed. Okay, so they're saying, look, uh, the judge determines, the parties determine, there's, there's no way we're gonna find our way through this. There, there's, there's no way we're gonna be establishing right and wrong. So we're just gonna trust God and cast the lot and be done with it. It's very important that we do 
all we can to end a quarrel quickly and decisively. And then our last two verses, 20 and 21. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. And so here we come to the conclusion that the previous verses were driving toward. Words have great power. Verse 20 cuts two ways. The word satisfied can be misleading, as if it's only a good thing. Actually, it means he's sated, or we might say he's filled up, he's stuffed, he can't eat another bite. The point is that your words have consequences. What comes out of your mouth will come back to you. Verse 21 tells us that words aim in the direction of death or life. If you speak wisely, you will be filled with the effects of your wise, life-giving words. If you speak the words of a fool, eventually your folly will fall upon you and you'll be as stuffed as the man who eats a dozen donuts. That's how it works. The fruit of your lips comes back into your stomach. If you love the life that the words of your mouth can produce, you'll eat from a good harvest of righteousness. Now, we just looked at 21 verses that cover a lot of wisdom about our use of words. And in preaching this, you know, you're, you're trained as a preacher. You're supposed to come out with one summary statement that gathers it all together. Okay, the power of words to bring life and death. But it, there's a lot of details here. I would encourage you, as you've gone through these texts, pick one or two verses that stood out to you as something that you needed and memorize them and talk about them with someone else. Talk with someone that you talk with a lot about your speech. <coughs> we are so familiar with words that we fail to recognize the power of words. Now, I want to finish this sermon by looking even deeper into Scripture as to why this text and its particulars are so very important. We are so familiar with words that we fail to recognize what it means to have them and to use them. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that all of created reality came to be the result of God speaking words. We also learn in Genesis chapter 1 that as God prepares to create human beings, He deliberates within Himself using words. Let us, He says, make man in our image. So there is something divine about language. Then God speaks to the man and the woman with a command, and He says, be fruitful and multiply, 
and other words. So we see that the man and the woman are able to communicate with God through words. Apart from angels and demons, no other created beings can use language. At least not with the vast sophistication that human beings can because our language is a divine gift. Words created reality. Words define reality. Words allow for communion with God and with other human beings. The revelation of this comes to a climax in the opening words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Here, Jesus Christ is being presented to us as God, the one whose words brought the world into being and is identified as the Word. That should give you great confidence. There, there is an ability to know reality. There is a, an ability to determine truth in and through Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that not only did God create the world through His Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, but that to this very moment, the Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. So the very nature of God, the Son, is word. And the very existence of the universe hinges on the power of the Word, Jesus Christ. And it gets better than that. God gave us a book that contains His actual words. We can know God. We can know each other. We can know the created world through how God defines Himself and through what He made as He explains what's there in His book. We can know what he loves and what he hates through his word. Consequently, God's words are a gift to us and should be exceedingly precious to us. And we should treat all words as a sacred gift to be used in God's service. Okay, there's not a special category of words for Christian contexts. And then there's these other contexts you are where the, the word rules change. They're all the same. He created the whole thing. His word defines the whole thing. His law applies to the whole thing. There's no compartments in this. We can use words to distort what we see of the reality God created and we can lead others into our distortion through our words. And we all have this power. It's a sacred gift. Every day, <coughs> we swim in a sea of words. Advertisers and this new class of people called social media influencers want our eyes and our 
ears. The news media wants our readership. Politicians are clamoring for our attention. And then there are those we see face to face whose words can be deep waters and require a lot of careful attention. Are we listening for wisdom and folly in what others say and publish? That's what these 21 verses call us to. Are you, are you, are you listening to these words and evaluating them according to the detailed instructions we have in these 21 verses? On the radio last week, I heard excerpts from the debate between two presidential candidates while each was clamoring to stake out his or her position as the best candidate for president. They said words to each other that were simply insulting. Bringing on each of them in the words of verse three, contempt, dishonor and disgrace. Now, we shouldn't be thinking, well, you know, that's my guy. It was a display of folly. This should not delight us when our guy takes down his opponent with an insult. We should hold his or her words up to the standard of God's word, and we should grimace when we hear folly. Politics in our day has descended into a display of folly. Maybe it's always been that way in America, but it seems especially obvious today. So much political discourse is now simply offensive to God. It leads, as our text tells us, to death. The folly that characterizes public life today is not neutral. It's not, well, he's not like that in person. But he has to say those things, you know, in modern politics just to get attention. Now, I'm not saying these things to position myself as superior. And this is not politics is not my world. So I'm not trying to give advice to anybody. I'm warning us not to follow the example of our political leaders who gladly participate in gossip, slander, lying and distortion. Brothers and sisters, this is not how Jesus spoke when he had to face hostile opponents in the conduct of his ministry. Okay, we take our cues from him. We must listen to Jesus. We must model our speech after his. He was not afraid to confront wrongdoing boldly and bluntly. He was also able to bring healing and grace with just a word. We must follow him into this world with the wisdom of Proverbs guiding us so that we can represent Jesus and his words in the world where he's placed us. And that's the claim of this text on our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for honoring us with the gift of language and we thank you for giving us your words that we can understand so that we can use this gift in a way that pleases you and brings about good 
in the various communities that we're a part of, starting with our families and our church and the various other places where we are. And we pray, Father, that (coughs) where we have walked in folly, you would show us how to walk out. And that you would give us the faith and the courage to walk in wisdom so that we never fall into despair because we're always trusting you and because we know that if we follow you in your wisdom, regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether we get what we want or not, you will be pleased. And that is enough for us. So teach us to speak according to your will and your ways. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.